On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The judge in the case was a lady. She's passed away since. But when I got up there, uh, you know, it took me up to the courtroom, there were all kinds of LAPD brass. There's a commander by the name of Stuart Maislin, who was the um, uh, risk prevention, uh, you know, officer in charge. There, there was a there was a deputy chief. They were watching this thing like a hawk. <laughs> and uh, they said, "What are you doing here?" I said, Two "Federal marshals showed up at my house." <clears throat> and so then, uh, then I got called into the chambers by this judge. And I said, I said, Your Honor, I, I know stuff I've never revealed and uh, about this case. And she says, what? I said, I miss some lightning. And she says, I, I have a sense that there's, that there's missing information. She says, there's a gap. And I said, yes, there is. And I said, I know exactly where these, these files are hidden. And she said, where? And I told her. I told her the filing cabinet behind this particular officer's desk. And he has a hidden compartment in his desk in robbery homicide. The Biggie Forgotten Files could be its own standalone podcast. And the document that defines the information and narrative was filed on July 7th of 2005 in the United States District Court for the Central District of California. Again, this legal filing is still under a federal protective order. I shouldn't have this document, but I do. And now I can share the exact information and narrative on what the forgotten files actually are. In June of 2005, the Wallace family civil trial was in court. The wheels of justice were spinning. On a Friday afternoon, Perry Sanders told the court and the judge that he had received a telephone call from someone claiming to be a former officer of the LAPD. This person in the phone call provided detailed information about the existence of evidence concerning the Biggie murder. The judge directed the Wallace family lawyers to provide to the city of LA all available information about this development and directed the city of LA to conduct a thorough investigation. The trial was temporarily adjourned. The civil trial brought by the Wallace family against the city exposed evidence the LAPD failed to produce that suggests two rogue police officers, David Mack and Rafael Perez, while not fitting the description of the gunman, may have been involved in the murder of the rapper also known as Biggie Smalls. This potentially explosive evidence involves an alleged conversation between former LAPD officer Rafael Perez and Perez's cellmate in the L.A. County Jail. According to this court record revealed now for the first time, 
Perez's cellmate told investigators, Perez and Mac were involved in death row records. Perez got involved in death row through Mac. They went to all their parties and stuff, the inmate testified. But there's more. The inmate also told investigators Perez told him he was at the scene of the notorious B.I.G. murder. Perez was working security. Perez had a cell phone. Perez said he called over to Mac, David Mac, on his cell phone. Perez told Mac that Biggie Smalls was in his truck. Perez never said that he set up Biggie Smalls, but I have heard that he had something to do with that murder. This is just a glimpse into hundreds of pages of documents involving this inmate's sworn statements that were not turned over to Wallace family attorneys. Former LAPD lead investigator Russell Poole. Those documents are crucial. That weekend, the lawyers for the city of L.A. and the Los Angeles Police Department conducted a physical search of the offices of the infamous LAPD Robbery Homicide Division. I walk into this room, Don, and there's like 10 of these robbery homicide guys. The most hardcore, old school, grumpy, whatever you want. And basically, they're the, the robbery homicide people. That's like the creme de la creme of the detectives there. I mean, it's a big deal to be part of that. And the fact that you've got this, this three-year FBI agent that's coming in there and and sitting down with these guys and telling them, hey, this is what this is the case I've got going on. Uh, the reason that we opened it up and I kind of gave them a little bit of the background and they already knew that I had been part of Rampart. They knew from all the publicity that I was the case agent on the Palmeros case and it just pissed them off. And the fact that I was investigating and actually had successfully prosecuted um, some of these LAPD officers, some of their own, that uh, that just doesn't sit well with these guys. So, I, I mean, I don't want to say they felt threatened by me, but they were without a doubt threatened by me. And especially since I was such a young guy. These robbery homicide guys, Don, I mean, they're all guys that got like 15, 20 plus years on the job. As a result of the search of robbery homicide, undisclosed evidence was discovered much of which was in the desk or cabinet of Detective Stephen Katz, the lead detective in the Biggie murder investigation. The documents centered around interviews by numerous police officers of an incarcerated informant who had been Rafael Perez's cellmate for some extended period of time. Now, from season one of the dossier, we understand this informant to be Kenneth Boagney. Boagney told LAPD investigators that Perez told him about his and Mac's involvement with death row records and their activities at the Peterson Automotive Museum the night of Biggie's murder. Monday morning after the search of robbery homicide, the documents were handed over to the Wallace family. So let's just stop for a second and go back to the idea of discovery and legal terms and what litigation abuse is and what the city of LA did was blatantly illegal and not just or moral. The judge gave Perry Sanders and the team additional time to review these materials and to also do depositions. When the trial resumed on July 5th of 2005, Perry Sanders and the legal team for the Wallace family asked the court for an entry of default against the city of LA or to declare a mistrial judge sanctioned them and we were getting ready to go crush them and then they got this investigative privilege invoked 
that was the last ruling of the court, so it's the ruling in the case. So they still have, and, and guess what? What we now know is, and so what they started doing was giving Judge Cooper things that if they were related to my case, they had to give me. But guess what they started giving her? The Greg Cating bullshit. Yeah, man. You follow what I'm saying? It was yeah. such a, it was one of the most comprehensive orchestrated gags I've ever seen or heard of in my life. Well, now we know Cating being the person that he is, who I personally think, personally think Chuck Phillips wrote the freaking book. That's the, you, you want to, this is my theory. He either wrote the book or came close to writing the book. This is the biggest protection deal that's ever gone on. Detective Steve Katz was deposed in the civil trial three times. In August of 2003, he testified that the file provided to the Wallace family contained all the information developed by the Los Angeles Police Department concerning the case. That seems laughable looking back now, and I'll have to research what happens when an officer of the law lies under oath. Are there any penalties at all? At the time of the deposition, Katz knew he had volumes of material in his locked cabinet. When asked by the Wallace family about the information on Rafael Perez and David Mack inside these files, Katz said no such information existed. In fact, the following list of items, which all were subject to discovery, were a part of the Biggie Forgotten Files. Here is a list. And with some of these files, I will give you my own speculation as to what they pertain to or why they were important in the murder of Biggie. Here they are as listed in the legal filing. Tape recordings of interviews by the LAPD with Kenneth Boagney. Well, Steve Katz wanted to know about uh, everything about Notorious B.I.G., the plot and they paid. They didn't come just see me once. They came and saw me three times, you know, so that's when I knew that. So whatever I'm telling them is, is something has to be checking out for them to come back and ask me more questions two more times. But then, from my understanding, it went, it went all the way up to the uh, chief of police, so they knew who I was. I mean, it wasn't no secret. I mean, they knew who I was. They just not they just didn't want to admit that some of their guys was involved with. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, they didn't pull the trigger, but they, you know, they were neck deep in it. You know what I'm saying? Transcripts also existed of board of rights testimony by Kenneth Boagney. There's a team's report regarding David Mack. Now this file is interesting and would tell a lot. A team's report was designed to identify police officers at risk of engaging in future problematic behavior. According to the documents, the team's report was missing from Mack's personnel file. This file would provide a chronology of all personnel complaint investigation in Mack's career. When the files were turned over, it was missing 15 such investigations in said file. Several LAPD officers, including um, Rafael Perez, Nito, Durden, and David Mack, um, were at Fritz's in Balfour, which is a gentleman's club, a, a topless bar. And at that meeting, was also um, a gentleman, um, a, a rapper, 
um, Suge Knight and some of his other associates and everything. And there was, in a nutshell, there was there was a hit taken out on um, Notorious B.I.G. In a civil trial, no matter if the information is credible or if the information is not credible, it would never justify failing to disclose the evidence to the plaintiffs. A party's obligation in responding to discovery is not to pick and choose which items of evidence it believes will be most valuable to the opposing side. Also listed in the forgotten file is the notes of LAPD detective Cliff Armas. I know through my sources that Cliff was a good guy. He was trying to do the right thing inside his investigation into not only Rampart, but the biggie stuff. If that is the case, then it makes more sense that some of his worked product would have been locked away in the desk. Here is the list of that material. Detective Armis's notes on 11-13-2000, which is an interview of Kenneth Boagney, an employee report made after the 11-13 interview, documentation of a police interview of the inmate on 12-10 of 2000, and a summary of a 12-19-2000 interview of Boagney. So reading through the tea leaves here, Cliff Armis interviewed Kenneth Boagney not once, but three times. I would imagine that speaks to his credibility. If you went to a prison and interviewed Kenny Boagney that many times and documented it. Continuing on, there's an employee report made after the 12-19 interview. And on 1-1401, there's an employee report to someone named Weber, a name I've not heard before. On 4-3-01, Armis wrote in his own employee report on the Biggie Smalls murder transcripts of three additional Board of Rights hearings. And on 4-6 of 2001, there's another report of Boagney. So that now is four interviews that Armis conducted in the span of a year. Last but not least, there is a document of Steve Katz's own chronology of his trips to interview Kenneth Boagney and handwritten statements by Boagney. If your, your sergeant or your lieutenant said, um, hey, I'm going to beef you, I'm going to file a complaint against you, uh, a disciplined complaint, you would call officer rep section and say, hey, I'm getting beefed, I need some representation. And they would assign a guy like Cliff Armas. Cliff would be like like your representative. He would, uh, if you hired lawyers, whatever, he would be there with you, and he would make sure that that whatever internal documents your lawyer needed, he would get access to. And they they were given the power internally uh, to have access to to whatever if it involved a discipline case. As is stated in the legal filings, the sheer volume of information attests to the seriousness with which the defendant treated this information. If the LAPD or the city didn't find Kenneth Boagney credible, why did they question him on at least four occasions? If you add the trips that city attorney Don Vincent took to visit Boagney in jail, this is very telling. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. 
Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife need a scintillating night out every once in a while at least. So download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize winning author, Toni Morrison, a mesmerizing coming of age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman too will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers and seeresses, liars, and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. The Wallace family lawyers argued in court that they started the civil trial with two arms tied behind their backs. It's an understatement. They made opening statements and questioned numerous witnesses before a jury, ignorant of the considerable volume of potential evidence being secreted in a detective's desk drawer. Detective Steve Katz, acting alone or in concert with others, made a decision to conceal from the Wallace family lawyers information which could have supported their contention that David Mack was responsible for the Wallace murder. With Kenneth Boagney being such a huge part of the Forgotten Files, I thought it was important to speak to him about some of the items mentioned above. I'm also happy to report that he's been released from jail and now is a free man. We spoke over the phone while he was still incarcerated and Kenneth gave me a little more background on his interactions with investigators that included Steve Katz, 
and Cliff Armis. He also provided me with some new information that relates to the Biggie murder. Here's Kenneth Boagney. So after he, he decides to talk and he tells you all of this stuff, at, at what point does, how does, how does it go from you two are in a, in a prison, he tells you something, how does it turn that people are now coming to try and talk to you? Or do you reach out to people? And if you reach out to people, who do you go and talk to? I didn't reach out to anyone. I get my sentence 40 to life. I'm in Calipatria State Prison on a mainline four-yard maximum security prison. Uh, a guy just got killed. Got, he's got his whole neck chopped off. Got his whole ring in me, the neck tied him like five people in front of me. A crip out of L.A. That was in November. Cliff Armis and them came. Cliff Armis and them showed up at the prison. Cliff Armis so Cliff, and Lori Cliff Gillian. Armis, Cliff Armis shows up at um, the prison. Calipatra State Prison. He's the first the person, first person to show up. And and what is, what does Cliff Armis say to you? And who does he say he's working for? Talk me through that. He told me. He said he's here, he, and with the hope that I can help him out and get some clarity about me and Perez's relationship. Evidently, he had talked to a sheriff deputy named Claudia Rodens that said me and Perez were tight, and she sent them to me. She sent. Cliff and them to talk to me. She, they had talked to, she had talked to Cliff, Armis, or whoever else uh, she, uh, she talked to, and Cliff came and found me. I had no idea, I didn't even know who Cliff Armis was. I wasn't even thinking about Perez and all the stuff he told me. It was the last thing on my mind. I thought it was, they said I had an attorney visit. I thought it was for my appeal. I go out there, first thing I see is the holster on his side. Not the gun in it, just the holster. I said, oh, this is police. You know, now I'm worried. You know, what the hell are the police doing up here? You know, you got the, the guys working in the visiting room. They see the holster, so they know it's police. You know, and that's never good. You know, when the police is coming to visit you. So Cliff asked me, he said, I'm here. I need to know about you and Perez's relationship. I said, we was all right. You know, what's going on? He said, do you know of a sergeant? Do you know Sergeant Burns? I said, I know of a Sergeant Burns. He was like, well, what do you know of Sergeant Burns? I said, you're talking about the sergeant that Perez lied about as far as uh, saying about the steps and the beer and all that stuff. So he immediately told me to stop talking, and he turned the mic on. He turned the, uh, turned the recorder on. And I said, man, I'm not going to let you record me. You know? I said, you can turn that off. So he turned it off, and I, and I told him everything I knew about Perez and the Sergeant Burns case. He told me he was here, to, uh, he was investigating, but claimed that Perez said the sergeant knew that they had beat this guy up really bad, you know what I'm saying? And I remember that case specifically, because Perez had a... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And he would take cases out of the folder and go over those cases, because that's the case that he was going to be talking about in his debriefings or, or when they would come see him. They would come see him a lot. When Cliff Armis came... How long had you been in the same jail as Perez? I had been 
Well, I was out of the jail with Perez. I was no longer in. I had left Perez. Okay. I had left Perez. I had transferred. I had been. I, well, I was in the county jail with Perez. I went to prison. I was now in maximum security prison. You know, it's not a soft prison. Uh, I was in Calipatra State Prison. I was in the state prison. And uh, me and Perez was in the county jail together. Okay. And so you were in the county jail with Perez for how long? Yeah. Uh, I was in the county jail from November 11th till July 6th. And I'm assuming you're in some sort of, like, protective unit because your family is Absolutely. law enforcement, correct? Yeah, yeah. My, my brother and did me a favor to me here. So one of, the, one of, one of, what you're saying is one of the deputies in the county jail must have talked to Armis somehow? Yeah, Claudia Rodas. It, it came out later on that Claudia Rodas talked to Cliff Armis. And that's how they knew about me and Perez's relationship being tight. So they picked me up that morning, which I think would be Tuesday morning, December 12th, and they take me to the Bradbury building. And during the hearing, uh, one of the lawyers for Cullen Patel asked if Perez ever mentioned about Death Row Records, him working for Death Row Records. And they, Who asked you? Lawyer named a lawyer for Color Patel. I think his last name was Seaman. And who did he work for? He worked for the, uh, he worked for, he was Color Patel's lawyer, so he was with the Office of Representation section. You know how when an officer gets in trouble, they get him a lawyer? Yeah. So he yeah, asked you if Perez ever worked yeah. for death row. Yeah. And did you and answer? They shut the, no, they shut the hearing down. They told me not to answer. That's when uh, uh, the uh, Hermosillo, is that his name? Yeah. yeah. Hermosillo was there that day. And they, that's when they shut the hearing down and uh, told me not to answer that question, that that was still under some type of investigation and told me not to answer no questions about death row records. And they closed the hearing, made everybody leave out. Okay. You know, and it was just, it was kind of wild. <laughs> This was about, Sergeant uh, Sergeant Patel. No, this is just a regular uh, uh, officer. Okay. Yeah, Perez got caught in the lie about him being at a crash pad. You know, at a party. At some party they were having at a crash pad with they brought women. You know, they had a little a little apartment building that they would set up in. Yeah. Watch gang members in, in the neighborhood. Yeah. And they were having a party there. They had like a little get together party where people in the loop came and Cutty Patel was in the loop. I remember Perez specifically telling me Cutty Patel wasn't in the loop, but he was trying to get all the officers he could investigate it. So he said that Cutty Patel was there. And Cutty Patel wasn't there. He was at Disneyland with his family. Ah, uh, okay. You know, and Perez did not like that, man. So he vowed to get Cutty Patel. He vowed to get him. He wanted every case he came on, every case he came under, Perez was trying to make bad. You know, every case Cullen Patel was involved in, Perez was trying to make it seem like Cullen Patel did something wrong. Yeah. You know. So uh, I testified to that fact, that he was out to get Cullen Patel and a few other officers. But a lot of them officers, you know, a couple officers that, you know, maybe seven or eight officers he lied on, but some of them was just crooked as hell. You know what I'm saying? And uh, when the administration asked me, well, why didn't you tell us uh, 
about who was bad. And I said, well, you guys never came and asked me anything. You know what I'm saying? And I remember it was a tall sergeant there, if I'm not mistaken. His name was, that, now that could have been at the county jail when uh, a captain or uh, assistant police chief Paysinger was there. I mean, you know, I remember him coming up to me and telling me, thank you, you know. And uh, told that administration, this guy has a lot of information. You guys might want to talk to him, but they never came and talked to him, you know. When do the when does the actors I'll call them actors because it's Perry Sanders, Dennis Chang. When does all of this civil stuff start? Is it after Rampart? Or is it to, well, you know, yeah, it was way after Rampart. I seen I got it was in 2002. Now I was in Calipatro again. I ended up going back to Calipatro on the SNY side, which is a sensitive knee yard. Because I couldn't go back on the main line anymore for our name being in the paper. So they got me, uh, FMI over the phone. I didn't even have to go back to Calipatra. I went to Corcoran. And from Corcoran, I went to Lancaster. And then from Lancaster, I went to Calipatra. I was in Calipatra and I'm reading the Vibe magazine. And I see that they have, I'd already told Cliff about, uh, Perez and them involvement in the uh, homicide. And they had sent, they had later on they had sent the homicide detectives to talk to me. Cliff was the first one I told. So, when so I you him, you out, told you told Cliff about yeah. which homicide? About the notorious VIG in the park Biggie and Mac and them played in. What but when did you tell Cliff? Because remember before when we were talking you said Yeah, I didn't first tell, I didn't tell Cliff didn't. Cliff we were driving back from yeah. at board here and, and I was in, in uh I had to be in Lancaster. Uh huh. We were driving back. We were driving back from Lancaster, and I said, "Hey, uh, Cliff." No, I was in Sat F. Uh, Sat F. I said, "Hey, Cliff, you know, uh, Perez and was involved in the B.I.G. murder." And he was driving me back from my administrative board here. They came and got me early in the morning from Sat F. And we were. And what did what did back. Cliff say? He said, "Man," uh, and that's when I told him. I said, "Uh." He was, why don't you check out and see if he signed his name on the log about going to see the B.I.G.'s body, whenever it was in the morgue. So uh, he came back maybe about a week later and said, hey, man, uh, you were correct. He did sign it on the morgue. I can't believe he told you that. He said, do you want me to send a homicide detective to you? I said, no, I'm not ready to do that yet. Because, you know, I wasn't, you know that, that's how it takes poker right there. You know, when you start, you know, talking about, you know, testifying for homicides and stuff like that. So I said, no, I don't think I'm ready for that yet. So, uh, about maybe five or six months later, almost maybe six months later, I, I called Cliff. I said, hey, man, you know, I, I think I'm ready, man. You can send these people down. So they came down. Cat, Agent Solar, and Robert Buff. Why did he say you know, he went to the morgue? Why would he go to the morgue? He just, he just, he just wants to see the body. He, I guess he wants to see the body. But Cliff Armis told me uh, that he actually did sign in. This was before that Perez I the signed it. That Perez signed yeah. in. He, and Cliff Armis found the body out. Yeah, uh, Cliff Armis. Yeah, I, I told him. Before I even talked to homicide detectives, I told Cliff to go check this out because I don't want to seem like a fool. You know what I'm saying? 
Cliff Harmon wouldn't check it out. That's when he contacted the homicide checks and he told them. You know, but when I told them, when they came back the next time, they said there's no record of him uh, finding This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I knew then they weren't being honest because Cliff had already told me that he, he had signed in. And what I told him, I checked out. Cat, Adrian Solar, and Robert Brown. These were all, they, they these were all, all homi- homicide were all, guys. Yeah, they were homicide. They came and what do you gave all the information. Them? I tell them everything. Off, yeah. off, off camera, off tape, I tell them everything. Yeah. They said, look, man, if your story check out, we're going to come back and see you. About maybe three weeks later, they came back and saw me. And I said, uh, they wanted me to go on tape and all that. I said, I'm not going on tape. I don't feel comfortable going on tape, man. They said, well, will you testify? I said, well, I'm not sure about testifying no homicide. They were like, well, look, don't talk to anybody. Don't discuss this with anybody until you hear from us. They made it perfectly clear. Don't talk to nobody. Don't, 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 don't talk to nobody or nothing. So, uh... I called them. I was calling them, seeing what was what was going on. They told me they were going to get back with me. They had to, they came back and said, "Look, Bogey, we got to get the FBI taking over the case." They were just lying to me. Uh, we got to get the murder books and all this shit. Some shit I didn't understand. Uh, they was like, "Look, uh, call us in a couple of months. We'll tell you what's going on." So I'm calling them. They never answering the phone. I'm calling them. I'm calling them. I'm calling them. And uh, all of a sudden, they don't accept collect calls no more. When Perez tells you, um, he then tells you about um, the the money aspect of it, right? That um, uh-huh. what does he tell yeah. you about who was paid or not paid? What what was that in in well, regards to? This was this was it. They had gave Muhammad some money up front. I'm not sure how much. I think two hundred something thousand from Shug from supposed to be Shug. He never mentioned Shug's name. I got to say that. They never mentioned his name. They called him the boss. They never mentioned his name. He, they had been stalking uh, Biggie and uh, his whole crew. They had been watching him and stalking him and stuff like that. I say stalking, but that's not his words. Those are mine. I say stalking because when you're watching somebody, you kill him. I think he's stalking. I think he made him pray. That's just me. Uh, and he said so he when, prior to that night had been following Biggie and yeah, seeing where he, said, he was going. Yeah, he said at some death row uh, security meetings that he they had met with Reggie White and Dave Kenner. Dave Kenner sent a message, gave a message to Reggie White for Mac specifically to take care of something. He didn't, he didn't say what he said, to take care of, find somebody to take care of everything. So evidently they found Mohammed. They met with Muhammad, talked to Muhammad, Mac and Perez talked to Muhammad. Then, uh, and then, uh, he told me, uh, a couple of days went by, uh, they were at Death Row Security Office and Mac and Reggie White was, was, was just on fire. I mean, they were mad as hell. They were, you know, they were just upset. And then when, when, uh, Gaines came to, to the meeting, Mac attacked them. You know, and the games was like, you know, what the hell wrong with you? Know, you know, they was like, what's going on with you, man? You know, what's happening with you? Games like, man, you didn't, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Games was supposed to cut off uh, Puff Daddy and Biggie as the same, you know, cut off both cars. 
And then I guess the, sh- the shooter was supposed to take care of his business. After the, the uh, after the, uh, Biggie's killing took place, evidently the boss, who I believe was Suge, Suge reneged. He said, I ain't paying shit. You know, he was in jail. I ain't paying this shit. You know, so this dude, Amir Muhammad, told Mac and Perez straight up, man, I didn't, Suge didn't contact me to do nothing. Y'all did when they told him that he wasn't paying. He was like, I want my money. You know what I'm saying? Or, you know, or he gonna, I guess he was going to get with them. So after he tells you this, he then proceeds, he talks about the bank robbery? Yeah, he talks about the bank robbery. He talks about his, uh, how he went to his job first, uh, to the uh, station, made a big scene. He made a big scene that day. Uh, so everybody can know he was there. He raced, he raced back to where, uh, wherever this bank was. I have no idea where the bank was or nothing. He was just, uh, Mac and some other guys went in there. Mac, it was Mac's girlfriend. Uh, he never told me it was Mac's girlfriend. I found out later that it was Mac's girlfriend. Uh, Mac and them went and did the robbery with guns and everything, got in the car and they all dispersed. Now, they met. Muhammad in Vegas and paid him the rest of the money. You know, uh, they gave him, I think they gave him maybe 400 grand of the money. Uh, they told him that's all they had was 400 grand. You know, uh, and they were prepared. Uh, it was, it was Sammy Martin Perez, Mac, and one other guy. Some friend of Mac that was not even a part of the uh, department that was involved in the bank robbery. Sammy Martin, Perez and David Mack went to Vegas to pay off Muhammad. They met at some strip club, I remember him telling me. And, uh, you know, these are the kind of stories that, that you won't forget. You know, people tell stories in prison all the time. People tell stories in jail. But when you get stories like this, these are stories that you don't kind of forget. 